Welcome to 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness with your host, Dr. Rob Bell. Dr. Rob interviews expert coaches, executives, and athletes about mental toughness and their hinge moments. The hinge. It connects who we are with who we've become, and it only takes one. And now for your host, Dr. Rob. Like the very next morning, I remember being in my bathroom, looking in the mirror, getting ready to brush my teeth, and I just looked at myself and said, no matter what, I just don't care, no matter what, you get up every single day, you brush your teeth, you wash your face, you get dressed, and you go to 7-Eleven and get coffee. Like, you have to be in front of people every single day. And you said you said that to yourself the next day. I said that to myself the very next morning. It had only been hours later, but I could can't look back at that and can't even believe that I had enough <laughs> sense to even say that to myself because I knew in that moment, like you could die, this could kill you. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Bell. If you want a free ebook the best mental toughness quotes that will make you better just text dr rob bell that's d-r-r-o-b-b-e-l-l to this number 33444 you'll get a download right away are you one of nearly seven in ten americans who doesn't feel fully rested when the alarm clock rings do you dread your mornings let's change that Psalm Sleep is a drug-free, non-habit-forming sleep drink in a small can that can help save your nights from tossing and turning. Find out for yourself at getsom.com and stop dreading your alarm. Psalm Sleep, it gives you Zs. So if you follow me and you're listening, so obviously you do, I talk about trusting your gut, like your gut is your inborn GPS. Well, in a recent networking session, I listened to her and knew like right away, like this needed to be my next guest because of her hinge moment. And then, of course, we have multiple hinge moments in our life and she has multiple hinge moments, I think, to share. It's going to be able to help us. Our guest is a certified time creation coach, owner of Results by Design Coaching. It's her mission to share. And I love this, right? It's not about the negative experiences, but what we learn. Sound familiar? It's not about the setback. It's about the comeback. And then this line, right? It's, it's by design, not by default. She was born in India and came to the USA at two years old. Being the only Asian then at her school, I think this episode is definitely going to be about identity, strength, resiliency. Our guest is Pratiti Pathak. Pratiti, thank you so much for taking the time today and joining us. Thank you for having me, Rob. That was a really great event that we were on. And I'm Super glad that I got to meet with you because I was on for a short period of time, as you may have been as well. So, well, I don't, I don't believe in coincidences. So, I'm, I'm glad we're able to connect. It, my, my first question has to be: so, my next, my next book is on time and navigating through this. I have to start right, like a time creation coach. You know, share with us about that and like the philosophy behind it. I think that we get very stuck on thinking that we're managing time. So there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of time management talk. And when we think about time management, time is really nothing more than just a construct in our mind, right? It's what we make it. We don't have any more or less time than somebody who's um, you know running a multi million dollar business or somebody who's just 
you know, working in a nine to five job. So we, we are always thinking that we don't have enough time. I think time is the number one most valuable thing that we have more than money, but we, yet we use it the same way as money, right? We spend it, we waste it, we invest it, we trade hours for money. So it's the one thing that we can't even get enough of and we can't get it back. See, we can make money back. We can't make time back. And I have gone through so many different things in my life. And one of the biggest things that I reflect on is how I've always wanted I've spent a lot of my life wanting to change different things in my life and get back certain time, do things over, right? We want do-overs and we just don't get that. So um, for me, I think it's more important to teach people how to create more time for themselves to do the things that they actually really want their life to include, right? We talk about retirement and what we can do after we're finished working and doing the grind, which just makes zero sense, right? Why would you spend uh, 50, 60, 80, 100 years of your life and only have a very short period at the very end when we're in the least ability physically and mentally able to do the things that we really want? So I want, I want us all to be doing that now. Create the time to do the things that you want to do now by managing your mind, not time. Manage your mind around what you're doing and be more effective. A lot of people think we're just efficient at things, but sometimes we're really efficient at things that don't produce any results. Mm-hmm. So, what have you discovered? What, what, what's the biggest time waster? I guess that that most of us do. Oh my God, today it's a lot of things. Social media is probably a good part of it. Just being on our phones is a good part of it. But I think we just waste a lot of time thinking about things and not doing. And it's most of the time because the things that we're thinking about doing, there's other thoughts that come right along with it, right? The minute that I want to do something amazing, something I've never done before, something that's beyond anything I've already created, right away, I'm just going to be automatically faced with my own self-doubt, my own disbelief, my own, like, I'm not good enough in some way to go do that thing. So then instead, I'm going to ruminate a lot about how it's not going to work versus actually giving myself the thoughts that would create the emotions to drive those actions to actually do. Mm -hmm. Amen to that. (laughs) So you were born in India, where it started basically at the beginning, right? You came to the USA at two years old. Being the only Asian then in your school, I think that's just a great way to start because your identity, and, and you've mentioned it before, what was happening on the outside was way different than what was happening on the inside of your house. Wherever you want to start, I think is perfect, but um, yeah. let's start there. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So I, you know, I came here in the early 70s, and back then... You know, when I think I go back to like the second grade and I was in a new school and I was in, um, you know, Northeast Philadelphia. Back then it was like no other Asian, no other ethnicity in the school with me. It was like blacks and whites and me. So it was like, what are you? I'm like, I'm not sure. So I, I went I went to Temple University. So what part of Northeast? Uh, okay. So literally right on the edge of um, Northeast and Bucks County. Okay. Yep, yeah, got it. Mm-hmm. So, there's probably five listeners here that will put that together, but it makes sense to me. Thank you. For <laughs> sorry sure, sorry for, for sure. the tangent. 
<laughs> no, no, that's fine. So, I mean, I literally got picked on and bullied and beat up a lot. Like my lunch would get trashed. My books would get trashed. And I got into a lot of fights, though I wasn't starting any of the fights. I was just always defending myself. And what I noticed is I just really struggled with wanting to fit in. Um, what was going on inside my house was very different than what was going on outside. The culture was different. The, uh, the level of strictness was different. You know, what I was, or I should say what my friends were allowed to do, I really wasn't. Like, I definitely wasn't a girl who was at the mall with my girlfriends or at the movies with my girlfriends. Um, so I had a lot of restrictions. And at the same time, I found it very challenging to share with my parents what was going on for me in school. Like, even at one point, my seventh grade teacher physically like pushed me into a room and hurt me and you know pushed me up against a wall and stuff like that and it was just like what is happening you know today that would be considered abuse and all of that back then you know we didn't really get involved with a whole lot of that kind of stuff and it was very different so as a kid you know trying to fit in um i mean Take it a little bit step further in terms of like your identity piece. Like, how did you, you know, how, how did you navigate that and like find your circle and people to hang out with? Was it, did you act out? Was it rebelling? I mean, did you excel? What, what was it? I didn't do any of those things. I didn't excel and I didn't act out or rebel. I really was just internalizing everything. I kept a lot of it to myself at first. Um, and when I say at first, like for many years, I just kept a lot of it to myself. It wasn't until I would say we moved from Northeast to Bucks County. And um, once I was in that atmosphere, a very different um, group of kids and different atmosphere. I remember my father, I was a very much a tomboy. So I was into all the sports. I wasn't allowed to do anything in school, but I did play outside with kids and Mostly there was older kids there. I had started smoking cigarettes. So, I mean, that's the way that I acted out. I started smoking cigarettes. I don't think I did it in intention to act out. It was more, again, trying to fit in. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, early teenage years, my parents caught on to the fact and found out that I was smoking. My father was very strict. Um, probably fear got a good handle on him and he was unable to control how he was handling the situation. So he was very short tempered, quick with the hands. So then a whole different set of <laughs> beating up on and bullying started happening, which was more in my house than with my, my peers. Um, I still got picked on about different things, but it was in a different way. It wasn't the same way that it, it was in elementary school. But um, I, I'll tell you what came out of all of that is I did what probably so many of us do is I internalized all of it. I made it all mean something negative about myself. And all through the bullying and trying so hard to fit in, I became the biggest bully to myself. And I got really good at people pleasing. And then if you know, the only person you're not pleasing is yourself. So I just was desperate to make everybody else happy, but I wasn't exactly like my friends, even though I may have seemed more Americanized to my culture, <laughs> but I didn't fit into my culture and like the kids 
that were from India that we used to hang out with, you know, when we got together with my parents' friend circle. So it was just like, I felt different in both ways. So it, it took all of my childhood and into early adulthood to actually even feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. Your, your teenage years. So what took place after you got caught smoking cigarettes? Uh, <laughs> I really just like literally went through the rest of my schooling with um, getting in trouble by my parents. Um, and then that would just lead to me not doing well in school and then getting in trouble for not doing well in school. So it just was this circle of not doing the right thing in my mind. That's what I always felt like. I just, I'm not doing the right thing. I don't know. I can never do it right. <laughs> so that's really what ended up happening. Um, I didn't date in school because I had a healthy and respectable fear of my father. <laughs> you know, I'm like, Oh, he will know. So I did start dating somebody um, after high school. I was 18 and we dated for about four years. We got engaged. And before we had gotten to planning our wedding or anything like that, I had gotten pregnant and um, he was struggling a bit with alcohol. So he got scared, got cold feet, whatever it was. His uh, parents had moved out of the country on business with the rest of his you know, a couple siblings. And so he ended up leaving me and leaving the country. So there was no, uh, you know, doing anything as far as child support. And there was no help at all. My family was very much against it. You know, now I had definitely gone completely against the grain. I was the black sheep, 100%. I'm smoking cigarettes. I've now been with an American man and and now I'm going to be a single mom. So I ended up living in my car for like three months, um, working two jobs, just trying to figure it out while I was pregnant. And then, of course, my family came together and became very supportive. And so that was probably the one uh, first most transformational moment of my life is first becoming pregnant and facing becoming a single mother. Then, of course, having my son um, as a single mother. and um, you know, I've gone through three really huge transformations in my life and all of them have to do with my son. As you mentioned earlier, like 17 years later, my son. Wait, can, I, can I ask you, can I ask you a quick question mm-hmm. before we get to that? What, what stands out to you now reflecting on living in, living out of your car, having a couple of jobs um, and, and being pregnant at that time? Um, in what way? So many things stand out for me. Well, I guess whatever comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, there was so... I, I'll tell you what comes to mind the most. I was, uh, for the first time... Oh my God, that's so amazing that you're asking me this question even because I hadn't even really thought about it this way. But really, for the first time, that was probably um, the moment where you made that decision for your life. It was like, no matter what, at this point, you are completely against everybody or everybody you feel like is against you. What are you going to do? Are you going to people please? Are you going to do what everybody else wants? Or are you going to go and follow your own path? And that was probably the one moment of my life where I was just like, screw it. This is what I want and I'm just going to do what I want. And I, I'm okay if nobody else wants what I want. And um, in that moment, obviously I did whatever it, whatever it was going to take. 
And um, I wasn't just living in my car. It kind of where I was like there. And, you know, if I could spend the night over my girlfriend's house or I was just doing whatever, you know, it took to stay healthy. I was still making sure that I was staying healthy and all of that. Luckily, it was um, uh, summertime. It wasn't, you know, harsh conditions or anything like that. I was making money. So I had money, but you know, my situation was that I did get thrown out of my apartment because before he left, he was not paying bills and I just wasn't aware. Mm-hmm. But so, yeah, so many things, I, I guess that's what stands out the most is it was the moment where you knew, make a decision. And what are you going to choose? Hey there, good looking. If you're digging this podcast and you're going to love our brand new book, Puke and Rally, it's not about the setback. It's about the comeback. Check it out wherever books are sold. And now back to the show. There's such strength in that, and I appreciate you sharing it. And uh, continue on the story then about your son, other hinge moment, and wherever you want to pick that up. Yeah, well, I mean, so many things in between, right? There were so many decisions. I teach children today, and I say children because I focus a lot on our young folks and, um, what stands out the most throughout my life is how important your choices are, you know, and creating your results on purpose. Like you said, like by design, not by default. And that, you know, was a very big reason for the name of my company, but um, I can't emphasize enough on how life altering some of our choices can be for the good and for bad, right? The choice that I made to, have my son was one of the most amazing things I've ever done in my life. And I stood by that. And to be quite honest, what happened after that is everything shifted for me. I was, I went from like being the black sheep and the person that like, you know, the whole family was like, don't go near her. She's probably going to eat the children. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. don't go around her too. I got to be a very respected person in my in my um, family just because of how passionate I was for doing what I was doing. And they saw me as a good mother and my son was a good kid. And, you know, everything changed from that point. It's like, it, it didn't just change for me and my perspective of my own life, but I feel like I really affected my aunts and my uncles and my parents and um, how they saw things a little bit differently because of me making the choices I did for myself. My son's probably one of the most amazing people I've ever met in my life. I'm honored to have been his mother. He was, um, you know, just an amazing individual. He was very charismatic, smart guy. Academically, he did very well. He was also very, you know, sporty. He, uh, he played the football and the hockey and the soccer and basketball, baseball, that kind of stuff. And um, at the same time was total dorky nerd and knew his time tables up to 30 and, you know, could beat anybody in the game of chess. So just a very well-rounded guy. During that, did you start to transform into, you know, can't do anything right into being able to look at yourself in a positive light? I don't know that I did look at myself in a positive light. I just knew that I was okay with kind of having my own back in so many ways. I felt like I was um, lying to myself and other people through that because, like I said, I still did get very good at 
people pleasing and doing what everybody wanted me to do outside of like my parents would have liked me to gone to college and I chose criminal justice and psychology and nobody was really on board with that. So I went for three and a half years, but then I stopped because, you know, nobody was really on board with that. So um, then I was in the aerospace industry. So I just went and did a lot of things. And today, I mean, I'm grateful for all, all of it because I got so much experience and so much exposure um, to so many different things, so many different jobs, so many different people. I think that's what shapes so much of who we are is who we surround ourselves with and uh, choosing the conversations we want to have with people and staying away from things that are, you know, going to hurt us. Mm -hmm. And then share with us the hinge moment then with, uh, with your son later on. Yeah. Um, you know, at 17, my son was a junior in high school. It was like the night before his uh, junior class trip. And my son had climbed a high voltage structure with two of his friends and touched a wire and by accident and fell 40 feet. So I had just seen him like three days prior, I mean, three hours prior and uh, got a phone call and it literally changed my life. I can remember it to the moment like I had texted him and called him and texted him. It was a night that I didn't want him out late and um, it was a Friday night. So normally I would let him out till 11, but I said, Hey, 10 o'clock, wherever you are, I'll come get you. It's just been a tough week. So I, at the time was just had divorced um, two years prior and I was working as a painting contractor. I had my own business and um I had texted him, got no response, called him, no answer, texted him, no response. And then uh, around like 9.41, got a phone call from a sergeant who let me know that my son had climbed the high voltage structure, touched a wire by accident and fell 40 feet at the train station. So in that moment, he didn't tell me the end result of that fall in the phone call, but I knew at that moment that whatever I was going to was going to be life altering. And I remember screaming, like screaming my head off to my father, like, you know, Devin's been an accident. And I didn't even tell him what had been told to me. And at the time I was on the phone with my boyfriend and I didn't even tell him, but he was like, don't drive. And I drove, I can't, I can tell you, I do not remember the drive. I only remember leaving the house and entering the hospital. I don't remember the drive. And I never told anybody until after it was all, you know, until after we, we knew what was going on. And it took me over two years to just not want to jump off a bridge every single day, you know, but I will tell you one thing I did do the very next morning. Um, not like we slept all night, but the very next morning, I remember being in my bathroom looking in the mirror, getting ready to brush my teeth. And I just looked at myself and said, no matter what, I just don't care. No matter what you get up every single day, you brush your teeth, you wash your face, you get dressed and you go to 7-Eleven and get coffee. Like you have to be in front of people every single day. And you said, you said that to yourself the next day. I said that to myself the very next morning. It had only been hours later, but 
I could, can't look back at that and can't even believe that I had enough <laughs> sense to even say that to myself because I knew in that moment, like you could die. This could kill you. This is going to kill you if you don't pay attention. Why do you think you did say that to yourself at that time? You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I don't know what was going on through my brain in that moment, but looking back, I remember people saying, you know, people talking to me like, Petiti, are you okay? Like, are you thinking about things? And yeah, I was thinking lots of the time, like, oh my God, I just, you know, I want to feel this pain for one more moment. And I remember somebody asking me, I think it was my boyfriend at the time. He was like, you know, what stops you? Do you think from doing that? I said, because I couldn't even imagine um, everybody who's going through so much pain right now, losing Devin, that I couldn't even imagine them having to deal with losing Devin and then me. I would never do that to people. I would never do that. And I would never do that to my parents. And, you know, so it would, and, and I remember them saying like, wow, I've never been so thankful for guilt before because you, you would never hurt yourself because you would feel guilty for hurting others. And I'm like, yeah. So that's probably reason. So in the immediate few years after, where does life um, start to take place again? Or did it for you? Yeah. You know, actually, um, about four years later, about four years later, I, well, so... I had, I had been going to Compassionate Friends, um, which is a bereavement group just for parents who have lost children. And um, I know I fought against going there for so long because uh, for months, for a few months, I was like, no, absolutely not. Like, I'm already struggling with my own sad story. I don't want to hear everybody else's sad story. And, um, you know, I'm glad that I was talked into going once and I was like, exactly, I don't want to go. And then I continued going and um, it was really great. But I will have to say that when it finally shifted for me was um, about four years later, I had moved closer to where my boyfriend was living and I moved out of Fox County into Delaware County. And it was just a complete different change of scenery um, I had gotten an apartment and um, I had been staying with my parents for those four years, which was originally a temporary move. And I was so grateful that I wasn't living somewhere by myself, but I moved and um, just having that different atmosphere and different people around me and meeting new people and, and talking, I think shifted a lot for me. And it's also when I went into real estate and, uh, it's just everything shifted for me at that point. Mm -hmm. What do you think it is about the power of connection with, because I believe when we hear other people's stories that obviously we connect on that level, but um, we, we wouldn't want their problems. Even as bad as they, they're experiencing it, we, we, we take ours, but what do you think it is about that connection with other people that helps with the healing? I think that 
what makes the difference. And I have said this my whole life. I think my gift is connecting with other people instantly and so deeply because I'm willing to share the difficult moments in my life. And the moment you do that, somebody else is also right away gives them the permission to share back with you. And it is what connects us as humans is our experiences, right? Just recently, I actually, you know, I, I'm a business coach, but I work with a lot of mamas who have lost their babies. And I work with people that struggle with anxiety and, you know, different challenges in their life. And I think that what is the most comforting part of that is knowing what somebody else is going through and being able to open up and share that way really does bond you instantly. I, I literally just said this uh, recently and it, it blew me away right after it came out of my mouth is I was talking to a girlfriend. I had just um, signed on a new client that had lost her son three years ago. And I said, what a gift my son has given me to be able to have gone through such a difficult time and I still go through it it's not like it's over but in that way I'm able to help another human being going through such a difficult time because she's still in the beginning stages of it we're all going through different things and they're not worse than anybody else's things you know when I when I hear people saying you know, you should never lose a child. You should never have to, a parent should never have to bury their babies. And the fact is, we, it, it should happen. It does happen. And it happens to all of us and it happens every single day. And to say that it shouldn't is how we keep ourselves stuck in those moments because we're trying to fight against the reality of what life is all about. And at the end of my life, I just want to know that I've been able to not just go through the experiences, but somehow, some way, being able to embrace those experiences, learn, grow, evolve through those experiences, process them in a way that's healthy and in a way that I can now help somebody else through a similar moment in their life. I think that's the point of being here as human being is connecting in those ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so sorry for the long winded answer, but I think it was well articulated. It was fantastic. Really fantastic. So, I mean, being as a coach today, a solopreneur, boy, there's really nothing you can't handle now, is there? I mean, you've gone through everything. No, I think there's lots that we can still not handle, right? It's not a matter of whether we, you're, you know what? That's it. That's a good point. Okay. I do feel that I can handle anything. Um, I don't welcome all of it, but if it comes my way, I will do whatever it takes to, to find the healthiest way to deal with it. Because I can tell you when I lost my son, I didn't have these tools and, um, I didn't help, I didn't, I didn't deal with them in healthy ways. Like for the first, um, six months to a year there, I have a serious addiction to hot wings and there was a uh, a, a small local bar that we used to go to all the time. Every Wednesday they had wing night and we used to go there for wings. And one of the things that was a very big challenge for me was I struggled with just preparing a single meal for myself. My mom was working night shift. My dad kind of buried himself in his office. We were all broken in our own way with the loss. And I couldn't cook for myself mainly because I couldn't even go into the market to buy food. So when I got hungry, I would just go to this local bar and get food 
and I would be around a lot of people, but guess what else is there? Alcohol. So I drank way more than what was keeping me back. You know, I mean, it, it, it kept me from progressing out of my grief. It kept me in my grief way longer was just being in that atmosphere for sure. Your uh, transformation then as a coach and then throughout the years since your son's passing, talk to us about, you know, this, this resolve, this mental strength, this ability to be kind to yourself and how you help individuals through that. Yeah. You know what? It's been almost 13 years since my son's accident and this transformation has been so recent just in the past few years. Um, I came across the life coach school. I just jumped in with both feet and um, it's been amazing since I joined their self-coaching program for over a year. Then it, I just saw the transformation that it made in my life. And I, for the first time, realized that I don't have to keep telling the same shitty story about my life to myself over and over. And I can change that story just by telling myself something different. And we may look at it like, you know, is that a lie? You know, are we being delusional? But we're not, right? I can tell you a story of how I grew up being bullied and picked on and how I got left by my fiance and how it was a challenge, you know, being a single mom. Or I can tell you the story of how my parents were really loving and supportive and they always took us on vacation with them. They were very educated and cared a lot about my education. And I, you know, had a, had a, had a boyfriend that, you know, we had a great relationship. He got scared, left, but it gave me the opportunity to have my son and raise him the way that I wanted to. And it was an amazing relationship. And it was like, I can tell you a whole different story. That would be amazing. So you could be like, oh, you had a really crappy childhood or, hey, you, you, had, you know, you did really good for yourself. So it is about the story that we tell ourselves. So this transformation has been so recent to, to finally get the tools that I wished I had so long ago. So that is the reason probably why I'm so passionate about getting people early on and talking to talking to young folks early on, right when we're first coming out of our mommy daddy issues and trying to figure out our lives. Mm -hmm. Where do you think most people, I had a, a, a guest, uh, Suzanne Castle, she always said stuck is never the furthest you can go. I always love that line. It was a good line, but where do you think most people or where do you see that most people get stuck? I think they get stuck with their own story. I think they get stuck with thinking how it shouldn't be this way and life's too hard. And I think they get stuck, like if whether you've gotten abused in your life, whether you've you know been in a bad car accident or you had a sickness or you had parents that got divorced or whatever the story is, whatever the circumstances are, whatever those experiences have been, the difference between being stuck there the only reason we ever get stuck there is because it's like we've gone through abuse and then we continue to abuse ourselves with that same story over and over. Just like the way that I shared, I got bullied and then I bullied myself, right? When I tell myself a story of how I got bullied, can I even be sure that that's true? Yes, I probably got bullied a bunch of times, but did I get really bullied? Did I really get bullied every single day? I got bullied all the time. Are you sure? Or did you just get bullied a 
handful of times and then you bullied yourself every day with the anticipation of being bullied. And that's where that story comes from. So we have to be really careful with how we're telling our stories about our experiences because the experience is over. But we stay stuck in it because we keep that story alive currently. Mm-hmm. That's where the stuck happens. And we can get unstuck by just choosing to think about these experiences in a different way. If you were attacked, if you were beat as a kid, you can stop beating yourself up because you're not getting beat up anymore. Mm-hmm. The only person beating you up now is you. From the pandemic, what, what have you seen from clients or society that, that's really been revealed from this that we still go through today? But what do you, what's been revealed that you've seen? Our fear. Our fear of the unknown, the, our fear of the unpredictable, our fear of the anticipation of something terrible happening, happening, right? One of the things that make losing a child so challenging is like, that's our fear from the moment we have children is we are afraid that something's going to happen to them. So when it does, it's like, it brings that fear to reality, but to be afraid of it all the way up until that moment makes zero sense. There's no benefit to it. So even during the pandemic, um, as a realtor, I was, um, I was putting out videos on a regular. So when the pandemic hit, I continued to do that. And one of them was, you know, we need to start asking ourselves the right questions. Like, what are we afraid of? Are we afraid of getting sick? Because that could happen anytime. Are we afraid of dying? Because death is on the table for us every day. Are we afraid of losing our jobs, losing our money? Like, these are things that can happen all the time. To have this um, fear, fear of what's going to happen with our government, fear of what's going to happen with, um, you know, the, the different ethnic backgrounds in the world, fear of losing our money or fear of illness and sickness and death. It, it is where anxiety and panic come from. You know, it's irrational fear of fear. It's we're fearing our fear to a, a, a point that it literally causes us to be sick. The thing that we fear the most is what we're perpetuating and making inevitable when we do that. So, yeah, I think fear is what has really um, been so exposed with the pandemic. I like the quote, fear takes you further than you want to go and it keeps you longer than you want to stay. That's the power of it. It is. It is. I, my ex-husband struggled with uh, anxiety and panic for many, many years and still does. And I, and I work with clients who really have a, a lot of anxiety and we're like, I feel very strongly about this right now. Um, we have a lot of young parents out there that do the, uh, you know, putting the phone or the iPad or something in front of our kids. You know, everywhere I go, I see these these little children, like two-year-old, one-year-old, five-year-old, they've got the iPad in front of them. And every single moment that they're not happy about something, they their mom or dad puts a video in front of them. What we're doing is we're like literally creating an entire generation of not being able to deal with our own emotions. Can't self-regulate. Can't. I mean, it, yeah. the point of being the parent, I know what happens is we don't want to see our children hurting. We don't want to see them go through 
um, pain, whether it's getting hurt physically or emotionally. We don't want them to lose. We don't want them to do, feel bad in any way, which is the complete opposite of what we actually do. Well, we want them to be able to, we don't want them to feel bad, but we want to, we want them to know that life is going to offer half the time, really great things, half the time, things that suck. If we don't teach our children how to embrace the suck, we're not doing them any, any favors. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're doing them a disservice as their teacher, as their leader, as their guardian, as their caregiver. Pratiti, what, what question should I be asking that I'm, that I'm not asking? I think that the biggest questions that I want us all to be asking ourselves is, you know, are we putting the right things? Like there's a lot of things that we're afraid of. There's a lot of things that we don't want in our lives, which, okay. I think we need to be asking ourselves the questions of what is it that we do want in our lives? Focus on that. You know, I just listened to an episode recently uh, on, you know, are you a hater? And what does that really mean? Like, are you spending more time or any time for that matter, thinking, talking, gossiping on things that we don't like? Are you sitting around talking about how somebody cut you off on the road? Are you sitting around talking about how, you know, the, you know, people in government aren't doing it right? Like, stop being on the bandwagon of the things you don't like. Just support the things you do like. Just focus on the things you do like because there's no upside, there's no benefit to focusing on what we don't like. There's to, to talk about how our boss isn't doing it right or how our sister-in-law isn't doing it right or how anybody isn't doing it right or the things that are upsetting us. Like you're not making a change in that way. If you want to make a change, focus on the positive things, focus on the good things, focus on what you do want and go do that. Mm-hmm. Mic drop moment. Yeah. Mic drop. I love it. You know, thank you so much for really taking the time and, and joining us. And what, uh, I mean, I'm going to put the links on there, but where would you want people to learn more about you? Uh, you know, if you're looking for real estate needs, if you want to invest in real estate, I think it's the greatest investment on earth. Um, I'm, I can be reached at Pratiti at kw.com. I'm Kelly Williams agent. And if you're looking for, diving a little deeper on the things that you want to create in your life, I would be happy to talk to you at PratitiGetsResults at gmail.com. I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, look up PratitiPathic, you will find me. Yeah. Well, you're a special person. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks so much, Rob, for having me. I'm so glad we connected. Absolutely. I'm going to have to have you on my podcast, which is like a brain drama because that's what we're always doing. Yeah. Consider it done. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Mental Toughness Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also check us out on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell or visit our website at drrobbell.com.